Welcome to Next in Nonprofits. I'm Steve Boland, and I am very pleased to be joined today by Russell James, professor of Texas at Texas Tech University. <laughs> Russell, thanks so much for taking the time. Sure, glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Steve. I um, asked you to spend a little bit of time talking with the podcast audience about um, these tax code changes because I've got a lot of questions that that run into people in the field as I'm talking uh, with them about their work all the time. And I've uh, found some of your resources that I think are very helpful. But before we dive into the specifics of all that, can you just um, introduce your background a little bit more about what you do? Sure. So I teach in the Department of Personal Financial Planning here at Texas Tech University. And what I teach specifically is charitable financial planning. So we actually have an entire four course graduate sequence online just in charitable financial planning. So we deal with the law and the tax aspects of that. But we also look into some of the uh, psychology. And in fact, I even do neuroscience research on how people make charitable decisions. And we cover that in some of the courses as well. I was fascinated to see behavioral economics as part of your focus area because it is uh, such an important part of what charities, I think, could benefit from understanding, um, which is sort of the first question that gets everybody into the whole idea of why give to a uh, a 501c3 charity. Um, There is this question mark about uh, the fact that these deductions, above all other types of of gifts to nonprofit organizations or other do-good causes, um, are eligible to be deducted from your income tax. And that's, you know, viewed as this very special protected kind of perk. Um, and it's, uh, I think, long thought of as a behavioral incentive. You know, here's another reason to give. Uh, but in my experience, of course, it's not the only reason to give. How do you start talking to your students around why people choose to support charities? Well, for those students that are going into financial planning, we always start with the first question of making sure that the client has charitable interests. It makes no sense to start talking about charitable planning or charitable gifts if somebody doesn't care about any uh, charitable causes. Uh, so you've got to start with that fundamental desire. It never makes sense, or at least 99% of the cases does not make sense to give unless your goal is to have a charitable impact. So although tax benefits are important and they're significant and they're nice, they can't be the only motivation for the gift because if money is your only motivation, then just hang on to it yourself and never give anything to anybody. Or uh, for people that are interested in in social impact uh, that, again, don't really care specifically about charities, there's lots of different ways to be involved in that. And I I think we've uh, seen uh, some more entrepreneurial spirits, uh, and most notably, I think the the Chen Zuckerberg initiative, uh, bypassing tax deductibility as an important aspect of what they think is their social impact mission. Um, Thinking, you know, I I don't really want to form a charity. I don't want to give to a charity. I want to solve this problem myself. I'm going to use my personal financial resources to do it certainly allowed, certainly legal, uh, has a little bit of a financial impact. But for those people that have uh, such large sums of money to work with, that's a choice they get to make. Absolutely. The idea here is that if you want to get tax benefits, then you need to follow these rules on how this is done. If you don't care about the tax benefits, then you can do whatever you want with your money. And some have chosen to do that in order to avoid the rules that come along with being a uh, tax-exempt organization. 
So as you um, have been looking at these changes to the tax code, I'm glad that we could kind of begin from the point of even under past versions of UX tax code, there was, you know, almost never an opportunity to say it is financially better off for me to give to a charity uh, uh, than to just hold on to my own cash. That, that's just a good myth to dispel that somehow people give because they're seeking some kind of tax advantage for themselves. Um, they, they may uh, have an interest in um, giving back to uh, a society that has treated them well. They've got some resources. They're ready to contribute something, and that's great. Uh, but now we've got to talk a little bit more about um, how do we help people communicate what their real benefits are or dispel some rumors about what might be happening as the tax code changes. So the first thing I want to ask you about under the new um, uh, tax code in, in effect uh, moving forward here uh, is the uh, changes in the personal deduction and what that means to people that may choose to itemize or not itemize on their taxes and um, whatnot. So could you just kind of give a broad overview of that personal deduction change and, and how many Americans are really going to be seeing a, a substantial change in what it might mean to give their uh, charitable contributions if they're not going to be itemizing. Sure. So I would describe the tax code changes uh, first as a lot of concern over the big issues that happen, but then there's lots of these tiny little uh, factors in the new tax code that are actually very beneficial to charity that have some offsetting effects. So if I were to give just a very broad overview on what's the impact, put it, putting all together, what's the impact of the new tax law, I would say this, for the top 10% of income earners, now this is the group that actually generates uh, at least half, uh, possibly more than half of all of the charitable gifts, for that top 10% of income earners, the benefits of making charitable contributions have actually gone up and in some cases gone up substantially. For the bottom 70%, that is 70% uh, of people uh, net, did not itemize their deductions in the old system and they're still not itemizing their deductions in the new system. For those people, the tax advantages of giving cash haven't changed at all. However, the tax advantages of giving appreciated property for some of those uh, people have actually gone up. And then finally, you've got that group in the middle. That is the, the group that's not in the bottom 70% that never itemized, and they're not in the top 10% that will continue to itemize under either system. It's that 20% that itemized last year, but didn't itemize this year. And for that group, there's the potential for the benefits from charitable giving uh, on the tax perspective to have gone down. But there's also a few strategies on how to work around that uh, impact for some individuals. So it's a bit, bit of a mixed bag for the higher end folks. It's actually much more advantageous this year than last year. For the lower end folks, either no change or a little bit better if they're giving appreciated assets, like for example, uh, shares of stock. And then for those that are right in the middle, uh, we've got some negative aspects, but some of those we can plan around. Well, that's the, you threw out some really interesting information there, one I didn't realize. So you're saying under previous code, I mean, the, the most recent um, version of the tax code, um, the vast majority of filers weren't itemizing anyway. This is sure. not a change for the majority of filers. Now, this is, of course, different from the dollar amounts, but from the number of people that pay taxes, this isn't impacting their choice at all. 
Yeah, exactly. So mm -hmm. unless they're giving appreciated assets, there's no change. They weren't itemizing last year, so they weren't using charitable deduction. They uh, they aren't itemizing this year. So for 70 percent of people, um, there's there's no change at all. For the top 10 percent, it's it's actually gotten better. And for those that are from that 70 percent to that 90 percent group, um, those are the ones where we've got some concerns with uh, them no longer itemizing. Yeah. So let's um, recognize for a moment uh, that, you know, the amount of money that is given by individuals uh, far surpasses anything that comes from foundation corporate giving. If we look at the Giving USA stats uh, as those are pulled together, uh, you know, it's it's a lot of money that is given by individuals. Now, to your point, the, the majority of the dollar amount is coming from that, you know, 10 percent of income earners and up and probably even, you know, more the top five or one percent um, where a lot of money is being given. But before we leave this idea of the the charities that are used to seeing those twenty five and fifty and hundred dollar type contributions, I, I'm really uh, I'm impressed with the idea, and just want to take a second to understand that so many of those folks under either system clearly were not doing this with an eye towards I am going to for sure benefit from a tax um, deductible contribution here. Some of them may, some of them may not have, depending on you know other circumstances in their lives. But it's it may be something that was communicated to them. They may have heard that as a value statement and thought, well, that's nice um, and, and I'm excited about that. But the practical application for it for the majority of people we talk to hasn't really changed here. Yeah, absolutely. We've essentially gone from a system where about 70% of people do not itemize, so they can't use a normal charitable deduction, to a system where closer to 90% of people, at least without planning, aren't going to be itemizing. Okay. So good to keep that in mind. And I think as um, different types of charities thinks about, think about their donor bases and whatnot, um, if we look at uh, where a lot of those contributions have gone traditionally in the um, surveys that we do see, the, the Giving USA type reports, um, a good third of that money does tend to end up with religious institutions. I think that you can kind of think about that as, uh, as, as gifts to the community churches type things. Uh, that's probably going to continue uh, unabated, unchanged changed in those ways. I think that people are going to be making those kinds of gifts regardless of this potential impact. So good for small charities to be thinking, we don't have to just assume that this change is going to have a dramatic impact on you know the, the large number of small donors. Now, let's move into that middle ground of um, donors that you know maybe did itemize uh, with a mortgage interest deduction and a few other things that made sense, uh, that they were going to um, itemize and take advantage of that charitable deduction at the same time. Some of those folks will um, fall into this new camp of it's going to be a better tax position for them to uh, just take their standard deduction. They're not going to itemize over that dollar amount. It really won't matter to them. They'll get the same thing. Um, in most circumstances, if it's just about the cash contribution. So let's assume some of those folks are you know, relatively well off compared to the, the bottom 70% of us. Um, how do we begin the conversation with them about um, how should they be thinking of what, what ways they could support charities and still take advantage of what the tax code does allow them to do? Sure. Well, there's probably uh, two key strategies for folks that are in that group. Uh, one strategy is uh, called bunching, uh, where the idea is if you've got some financial flexibility and you know about how much you tend to donate every year, go ahead and shift those assets into a donor advised fund uh, in a single target year. 
Uh, and so in that single target year, you're go going to make two or three years worth of contributions that you're going to shift into the donor advised fund that allows you to take deductions for all of that, uh, those contributions immediately in your target year when you will be using that deduction. And then in your off years, you actually make no charitable additions, uh, no charitable gifts, uh, other than you are then making transfers out of the donor advised fund to the charities. Those second stage transfers, when the money leaves the donor advised fund and goes to the church or the charity, uh, those aren't additional charitable uh, deductible transfers. Uh, and so it only counts when you actually put the money initially into the donor advised fund. And so this idea of bunching is that you pick some years where you say, okay, this is the year I'm going to itemize. So I'm gonna just make several years worth of contributions into this donor advised fund. And then in the off years, you just take the regular standard deduction. Now the charity doesn't see any difference because they're receiving checks from the donor advised fund throughout that three year period. But the actual deduction was taken uh, during the initial year in that bunching year where you take that, uh, that deduction. So for people who are close, uh, they're almost itemizing, but not quite. Then we recommend this idea of uh, bunching using a donor advised fund, uh, depending upon the level of financial flexibility, so that at least you can deduct in specific target years, even though you're not going to be deducting every year. And you have a second strategy, but before you go on, I, I do want to ask you about um, that donor advised fund component of this, because uh, I think to a lot of charities that um, is a, a somewhat opaque tool uh, that is out there that, that people of uh, means have had access to, and it's been growing as an adopted tool. But um, now thinking of it as something that maybe those 70 and 80 percenters might use too, uh, seems like, well, is there some minimum number of a contribution in order to to uh, found, create, start one of these funds where it really um, begins to make sense? Or can you do that through a, a fidelity tool at relatively low dollar amounts? I mean, um, what, what are we thinking of for how, how much deposit do you have to uh, create a, a fund like this? Generally for the large financial institutions, you start out at $5,000. So not a uh, really uh, huge uh, uh, imposing uh, amount to get started with. So for those that uh, are going to be contributing those amounts or, or larger, you can start out at that $5,000 level, and then you can continue to manage those funds, uh, uh, make additional contributions that could be much smaller uh, after that uh, initial uh, contribution, and also manage the payments that come out to, uh, to charities. In fact, a lot of people have actually used these for years in a similar way, where they will decide at the end of the year, seeing what their income is, how much they want to make in contributions for the next year, they'll go ahead and write that check to the donor advised fund at the end of December so they can take the deduction a year earlier. So this is just an extension of that same idea. And in fact, in talking with folks that work at donor advised funds, they've seen a dramatic uptick in the creation of these kinds of accounts since the new tax laws come into effect. Even increased from the years previous, I mean, the most recent years where we've seen them going up anyway, even before the tax code change, there, there's been a, a fairly sizable uptick in usage of those things. But you think even more still now. Yeah, absolutely. Especially oh, well. with the new accounts because of this idea of bunching that is going to be affecting so many more people 
where before they didn't have to worry about a donor advised fund because they just wrote checks directly to the charities and deducted them at the time that the gift went to the charity. Now they're seeing that they're not going to be able to itemize in every single year. So they need to add this tool uh, so that they can pick uh, key years to itemize in using the donor advised fund. So an awful lot of charitable fundraisers have long held that the idea of year-end giving is a, a really important communications time for charities to be talking to potential donors because that that very reason you just stated, that folks will kind of look at their income for that year, how things have gone, and make some decisions that they may give a little bit more if they've had a really good year, uh, take advantage of that tax impact in one big bunch. Um, so now we may kind of need to shift from year-end giving to sort of uh, bunch period and um, kind conversations to say, if this isn't the year, you know, then, uh, you know, retain your, your uh, dollars, but think towards the idea when you might be um, bringing a, a big enough bunch again to, to the table and then how they might be able to contribute into that. Uh, it's a longer term strategy, but certainly people in charities have been doing that with uh, things like planned giving for a long time. Sure. And a charity could say you don't even have to use a donor advised fund. You could just write a big check to us this year and we'll come back to you in three years uh, mm -hmm. in, sure. the, in the meantime. So that's a possibility as well. You don't actually have to use a donor advised fund. You could just decide that I'm going to contribute big this year, not contribute the next two years, and then contribute again big in a later target year. The reason that people like to use donor advised funds is that gives them the flexibility to continue to transfer funds, uh, gifts to the charities uh, every month or, or, or every year without having these big breaks and what the charity is actually seeing on their end. Right. So better planning from the charities will be required if they get those funds up front. And of course, the donor could always um, um, make a temporarily restricted gift too. Um, we, charities are used to seeing that from foundations and other partners that will do multi-year giving with one large chunk and mm -hmm. ask people to restrict it. Uh, so uh, there are ways to consider that. And I really appreciate you bringing that up as a, uh, a strategy for those uh, 70, 80 to 90 percenters. Uh, you'd mentioned one other idea that might be important for that group of people though. Sure. So one of the advantages that uh, hasn't gone away and in fact has improved for a technical reason is that from a tax perspective, it's always better to give appreciated assets such as, for example, appreciated shares of stock rather than to give cash. And the reason why is this. you uh, If you've held that asset for more than a year, you still get the identical tax deduction, regardless of what that is that you would have gotten with giving cash, but you also get to eliminate all of the capital gains uh, that otherwise you would have to pay taxes on for that appreciated asset. So this is a strategy that we've been suggesting to people for a long time. Most people don't realize that you can actually do this without changing your portfolio at all. So for example, let's say you had $10,000 in cash, you were getting ready to give that to a charity. As a financial advisor, we would say, no, no, give the appreciated shares of stock to the charity, take that $10,000 in cash and simply buy replacement stock. You can immediately buy identical replacement shares. The only difference is those brand new shares, all the capital gains taxes have been wiped out from them. Uh, so we call that the charitable swap. 
that's still available. If you're working with a charity that doesn't know how to accept a gift of stock, you just use a donor advised fund. You shift it into that donor advised fund and have the fund write the check to the charity. Now, the reason why that strategy, which has been effective for a very long time, has gotten even more effective is that for a lot of people, their effective capital gains tax rates have gone up. Now, there hasn't been much talk about this in the in the press, and that's because it depends on what state you live in. The federal capital gains taxes didn't go up at all. But for people who are in states that charge state capital gains taxes, such as, for example, in California, the top state capital gains tax rate is 13.3 percent. Last year, they were able to deduct anything they had to pay in those state capital gains taxes from their federal taxes. This year, that's capped at $10,000 per individual or per married couple. Because of that, most people, many people are going to be capped out from being able to use those deductions just from their property taxes. And because of that, that means they're actually paying higher combined capital gains taxes this year than they were last year. Well, since they're paying higher combined capital gains taxes this year, that means avoiding those capital gains taxes is that much more important. And we can do that this year just as we did last year by encouraging people to make contributions from appreciated assets, such as stocks that have gone up in value rather than cash. So a great moment, too, to remind charities listening that uh, if you do not yet have a uh, gift acceptance policy that helps clarify how you work with non-cash gifts, uh, this is uh, there are templates available from the National Council of Nonprofits and others, um, but a great time to be proactive and have that at the ready that as you're having conversations with people that may have the ability to give an asset rather than cash, um, that you're clear about how that works for you. Um, there are some charities that are uh, very specific, for example, that they would um, have a policy to liquidate any cash gift or any stock gift immediately. Um, and I mean, that's the normal process. Uh, sure. But there are some times when uh, donors have reasons where they're like, I'd like you to not liquidate this for some period of time for whatever reason. And you just need to be clear ahead. Um, what What is your policy? How do you communicate that with donors? Um, and especially around things that are not um, as easily liquidatable as uh, a, a publicly traded stock. Uh, lots of other types of appreciated assets that might be out there that are less easy to translate into cash. Um, and you want to be sure that you're understanding your liabilities as a charity. So again, talk to very smart people like Russell about, uh, you know, what's the tax implication of this stuff and how do they uh, think about it ahead of time as more people look at this as an opportunity to give? Well, and the great thing that we have today that didn't exist uh, several years ago was that there are now donor advised funds that will accept essentially any kind of asset. Now, not necessarily oh. the big financial institutions, but there are donor advised funds that will accept anything from uh, artwork to crops to cattle to, you know, uh, joint shares of a racehorse, whatever you can think of, they will accept it. The nice thing for the charities, they don't actually ever touch, touch anything except for the cash that comes out in the other end. So there are more options for charities today uh, than there were a few years ago. Well, I was unaware of that. So that's very helpful to understand that uh, if a uh, a donor wants to make that gift of an appreciated asset, they claim a deduction for whatever fair market value can be assessed on it, regardless of what it's liquidated for uh, by the donor advised fund. Is that correct? 
Yeah, so there can be a difference between those two uh, two numbers. Uh, yeah. So um, you know, you can have an appraised amount, uh, and then uh, can give it to the donor advised fund, uh, and it is possible that it might sell for a uh, a different amount. Um, and of course, uh, you know, things are very different if you're actually giving personal property items that you want the charity to use directly in their work that you can't do through a donor advised fund. But if you're just looking to get the cash out of uh, what ultimately is just going to be sold, um, you can run essentially anything through some of the more creative donor advised uh, funds that uh, uh, that are open for any kinds of assets. Well, that is a, a really good tip. I, not something in every circumstance. Again, most people that think that are considering charitable contributions of um, uh, you know assets that have appreciated um, are probably thinking about these more traditional stock bonds kinds of things. But um, good to know that that's an option out there for um, charities to have conversations with their donors, understand um, what those opportunities may look like. I, I think that's great. I was unaware of that one. So thanks for sharing it. Sure. Sure. And in fact, it's great. You have your gift acceptance policies, but if you're a fundraiser and you're working with a donor and you say, ah, this doesn't fit our gift acceptance policies, you don't have to just say no. Right. <laughs> you can say, well, here's a, a donor advised fund that you can work with. They'll take it. Uh, and then after it's sold, uh, uh, you can send us a check. Right. And and to your point, when those cases where you do get a, a gift in kind, uh, that is something that fits the charity's mission, is useful for the charity, whatnot, they're not going to liquidate it, then right. Some, uh, they can claim their tax deductibility at their fair market value assessment. You get to use yeah. the asset all as well, and, and that can be a direct transaction, and that's great. But um, for those times when, when that uh, asset isn't something that the charity needs to use directly, great options. These are really important ones to think about. So um, now I think what, let's kind of transition, if we uh, may, to that you know 10% um, and up category where they're still going to be deducting, um, they're still going to be itemizing their, uh, um, uh, their taxes. Um, the rates have changed, uh, so I think that that you know may impact how they think about giving. Since uh, to your earlier point, maybe it would have been possible to just retain more cash; less of it would have been a tax uh, payment anyway. But again, understanding our our uh, behavioral economics perspective, that that is not the reason why people are giving. Um, let how do we think about those larger donors that that are uh, still going to be using um, itemization? You know, how how does this impact them? Well, what I would say is that for a, a large share of those people, um, the reality is the tax benefits have gotten better under the new tax system than under the old tax system. Now, you do point out that the federal tax rates went down actually for some people, uh, for singles earning between 200,000 and 416,000, they actually went up from 33% to 35% at the federal level. But here's some other things that are happening that make those charitable deductions more valuable. Last year, those charitable tax deductions actually got knocked down for individuals that were earning more than $261,000. Uh, this was called the P's limitation that cut down the value of charitable tax deductions. The new tax law eliminates that P's limitation. That makes those charitable uh, tax deductions even more valuable. And the other factor, which I had mentioned a bit earlier, is this idea that if you think people are facing lower tax rates, you're probably either in 
a state that doesn't charge state income taxes or you're not considering state income taxes. And again, the big difference is, especially for these high income earners, last year when they paid those state income taxes, they could then deduct the state income taxes that they paid off of their federal income taxes. And because of that deduction, the hit they took from those state taxes wasn't that much. This year, they're not going to be able to deduct those because they're already capped out just from their property taxes alone, which means they are facing much higher combined state and federal income tax levels this year than they were facing last year. Because they are facing those higher marginal combined state and federal tax rates, uh, they actually get more benefit from a charitable deduction this year than they got last year. Uh, and again, that's due to the sort of technicalities of what happens because of this cap we have on state and local tax deductions. On top of that, we've actually increased in the new tax law the total share of your income that you can wipe out with charitable deductions. Last year, the maximum that you could wipe out was 50% of your income. This year, you can wipe out up to 60% of your income uh, with charitable deductions. So we have these benefits um, that uh, are actually increased. And then there's one wonky little new benefit that we've not dealt with before. And that has to do with this new tax deduction that relates to business income, uh, where sometimes people can take a 20% tax deduction for income they get from, uh, for example, a subchapter S corporation or limited liability corporation. And there's actually a way to combine charitable giving with that benefit to make the charitable giving even more powerful from, from a tax perspective. Assuming again that you're going to be itemizing, right? Absolutely. So this is assuming we've got people who are in that uh, itemizing level and they can use deductions. So let me ask you to go back and talk about this P's limitation being removed again. I don't. Um, I, I learned a little bit about that on some of your web-based resources, and I'll have those linked in the show notes for people to kind of re-reference in print. But can you explain what that was and what its removal um, may mean for some donors? Sure. So in very simple terms, the P's limitation, which had been in place for a number of years, reduced charitable tax deductions by 3% of income over the last year's level was $261,500. So you can think of it as a way where you get your charitable tax deduction, but because you're a high income earner, you're over this $261,500 as your income goes up, your ability to use those tax deductions starts getting chipped away at. The more income you earn, the less that you can actually uh, deduct for each dollar of charitable giving. So this was a rule that could get fairly technical. Um, and as your income went up, it reduced your ability to use these charitable tax deductions. The great news is that now nobody has to learn those stupid rules because they're <laughs> all gone. And we can deduct 100%, no matter if you're making half a million, a million a year, whatever, we get 100% deduction on those uh, charitable uh, gifts. So again, for those top 10% income earners, charitable tax deductions are much more valuable this year than they were last year. 
So let me just back up and and ask you to talk a little bit more about how um, charities may want to share this information with uh, their donors, but also what are you hearing from the personal finance field, from people that are you know those professional advisors as as you're talking about this in conversation? Are they getting caught up on these changes? Are they in a position to kind of share the stuff that you're sharing with this audience today, or is there just going to be a little bit of lag time there as everybody figures this out? You know, I think there's a bit of a lag time because there are parts of the new tax law that we've still got really big questions about. You know, I referenced this 20% deduction for business income. Uh, there's lots of uh, con- complications and confusion around that, that people are sort of doing the wait and see approach. But I think these issues of how charitable tax deductions are more valuable this year than they were last year for that top 10% of income earners who will still be deducting. These are issues that are front of the mind for people in high tax states. So for example, for people that are doing financial planning in states like say California that has a top tax rate of 13.3%, things have changed dramatically. Last year, just just to kind of give you a, a little bit of an example, Last year, because that 13.3% was deductible, it actually meant that you were really only paying at a little over an 8% rate because you paid at the 13.3% rate at the state level, but then you got the tax benefit at the federal level at the 39.6% rate. So you offset those things, and it was really only about an 8% rate net that you were facing at the state level. This year, it's not an 8% rate. It's a flat out 13.3% rate. So again, people in those high tax states and 80% of people in this country live in states that have a state income tax. They're recognizing and doing a lot of political screaming about how they're going to get hit under this new tax law. The flip side of that is as those effective rates go up, the impact from making charitable gifts have gone up as well. Uh, And so this is really kind of a state-specific issue uh, Mm -hmm. where if you're in a high-tax state, your effective state, uh, your effective net rates have gone up, even with the federal reductions uh, for many of those high-income earners. And so because of the rates have gone up, the value of deductions have gone up as well. And you've mentioned in a couple of different places in our conversation about the uh, um, um, the capital gains tax uh, as a state function, the property tax as a state function, income taxes. We're talking about deductibility of any state taxation, right? These all of these are in the same category, or there's still some things that those state taxes are independently deductible. No, we actually have now a cap, ten thousand dollars per. Uh, uh, individual or per married couple that all state and local taxes, anything above $10,000, completely non-deductible now at the federal level. And so again, if you're talking high income earners, even before they start paying their state income taxes, they're probably going to be capped out just from their property taxes. Right. Uh, so because of that, what people are actually facing is that the income taxes they're paying at the state level, at least at the margin, at the at the point that they're deciding whether to give or not to give, they're essentially completely non-deductible for those people because they're already well past that $10,000 cap on all combined state and local taxes. 
Right. And and you mentioned California as an example that the property tax alone, because the valuation of property in many of those California communities is just very different from what a lot of the rest of us across <laughs> the country um, have to deal with. So, okay, good for them to understand that that impact is coming and how they can make that part of their planning. Uh, so as as we think about you know prepping all of this information, I think um, I will just kind of uh, re-emphasize one more time that I've heard from a number of charities like, oh my gosh, with this um, big change in the tax code, people are not going to want to give. And I just want to get us back to that idea of um, there are certainly tools that if you're looking at what you know, planning out the best possible way to give um, things to think about that you've identified here, but that this was not a primary driver of most people giving in the first place. So um, let's all take a breath and realize that as charities, we are not out of business because the federal tax code changed. Absolutely. So you start with the fundamental idea that people want to support a charitable cause. If that's not there, then it doesn't matter one way or the other what's going on with the tax code. If that's there, then we can get into some of these tax issues. And in fact, there's actually lots of good news in the tax code to go along with some of these changes that people are concerned about. So you've um, also helped people, I mean, before this tax code change, think about the um, uh, planned giving um, in a in a different way. And, uh, you know, does this, in terms of people thinking about those uh, planned gifts, uh, things that are a little bit more complicated to um, think about, deal with uh, charitable remainder trust, for example, these charitable annuities, uh, um, you know, does, does this have any more impact or are those tools kind of uh, immune from this conversation? Well, certainly the nice thing is all of our big instruments, all of our big tools that we use in plan giving, they were all completely protected under the new tax law. So uh, none of those have been changed. You know, I would say one of the things that is should be top of mind for nonprofit organizations is if you've got donors that are age 70 and a half or older, Nothing changed for them because the best way for them to give before was to give out of their retirement accounts. Uh, you can do what's called a qualified charitable distribution. You can give out of that a retirement account. People 70 and a half or older are forced to take distributions that they have to pay income taxes on. But if they instead distribute directly to the charity, uh, they do not have to take those distributions. They do not have to pay income taxes. And it's sort of like the perfect world deduction because they actually never see the income in the first place. Uh, so that hasn't changed. Uh, that was the best way to donate for people 70 and a half and older who had funds in a retirement account, such as an IRA. Uh, before the tax code change, it is still the best way in the new tax code change. And it doesn't matter that you're not deducting in that case, whether you're deducting or not, still the best way to give uh, cash is to go through that process. So um, we have a little bit more time before we have to wrap up, uh, not, not a lot, but a little bit more. And I do want to just ask you to talk about some of those lesser known tools in, in plan giving um, for people that are maybe thinking, I'm not ready to um, 
uh, commit to the idea that I can live on, you know, just this dollar amount over here, but I am ready to commit to which charities I want to give to. They can be doing some planning now uh, in terms of things like uh, um, uh, an irrevocable trust or even a revocable trust that um, allows them to kind of use their money in the interim uh, in ways that really kind of help them, but uh, also makes a commitment to a charity. Can you just briefly describe how those tools work in this conversation? Sure, absolutely. So probably the uh, most obscure but powerful tool is if somebody decides that they want to leave something in their estate plan to a charity, if they decide that they want to leave a, uh, a, uh, any uh, land, which is either farmland or personal residence, they can actually sign a deed right now today called a remainder interest deed. And that says, after my life, this house or this piece of uh, farmland will go to a charity and they can take a tax deduction, an income tax deduction for that right now today, even though it doesn't actually transfer to the charity until after the end of their lives. Now, a more complex version of this is called the charitable remainder trust. And the idea of a charitable remainder trust is you take an asset, you set it aside into this charitable remainder trust, you continue to manage the money in that charitable remainder trust. You can sell that asset, pay no capital gains taxes because now it's in this charitable trust, but yet you can continue to take income off of all of those uh, assets in that charitable remainder trust for the rest of your life. Uh, or if there's more than one person, could be for multiple people's lives. You get an immediate tax deduction and what goes to the charity goes to the charity at the end of life. Believe it or not, there's actually been some finance professors who have done calculations published in peer-reviewed scientific journals that says, you know, these tax benefits, the fact that you can sell your asset, pay no capital gains taxes, and continue to earn income off of the 100% value of that asset undiminished by capital gains taxes in a tax limited environment that that can actually come out being better off for individuals in their retirement planning than just selling the asset, taking the, the capital gains tax hit up front and trying to earn money off of what's left uh, for the rest of their lives. So this is one of these cases where the tax benefits are just so, uh, so extensive that sometimes you say it gets to the point where uh, they're stacking up and it's almost as valuable as uh, as uh, not giving it all from a financial perspective. Uh, so that is an instrument that's very popular uh, used as a way where you can sell, not pay capital gains taxes, continue to control the investment, but take income off of it for the rest of your life, even though you get an immediate charitable tax deduction, simply because whatever's left over at the end of life goes to the charities that you've named. So these are, are great tools. Again, not right for everybody. Um, and really important that I think we we have that disclaimer that needs to happen in nearly any one of these circumstances that, of course, all donors should be um, having a conversation in their state about their codes with their own individual tax advisors and whatnot about what's appropriate for them. But good for charities to be able to 
have the conversation with their audiences saying, um, there are still really important ways for you to think about how you can make a meaningful impact on the charitable work, please do consult one of those advisors. Let's talk a little bit about what's the right tools for you and not rush to the conclusion that, oh boy, the tax code changed and you know there's no point in charitable giving anymore, but rather how is the right mechanism, what's the right tool set to support the work that you think is valuable and uh, kind of plan uh, all these other uh, ideas that you've got out there. So as, as we are getting ready to wrap up, um, you do have uh, some great publicly available information about this for people um, that maybe don't want to listen to a 45 minute podcast. You got a board of directors that is really interested in this idea, um, but they don't have that kind of time. Um, can you just kind of briefly share, how can people find those YouTube videos that I referenced or some of your other work? Sure. So a couple of different ways. Uh, one is uh, on uh, on YouTube. We do have some short videos or if you really want to get into the details, there's a set of uh, 65 different videos on all the complexities of plan giving you can go through, uh, but also much more uh, simple, straightforward ones. Uh, I think if you go on YouTube and just uh, just Google Russell James uh, planned giving, uh, that will come up that way. Uh, if you uh, want to connect with me on LinkedIn, I'll actually send you uh, a reply that has links to every single academic paper and every single presentation and video that I've ever done. Uh, it's all free. Um, and so uh, that's that's another way for folks that may want to connect that way. Well, I really appreciate you being willing to share all of this information. It's really important to get out there. And uh, I found in particular, I think that um, the YouTube video specifically about the, the 2018 changes um, in under 10 minutes really covers things very well, good visual. So for that uh, development committee or the board of directors or whoever that might um, not have a lot of time to invest, it's a great overview. So we'll have that link directly in the show notes. Um, I recommend that as a good starting place, but for people that are willing to dig in a little bit more. Uh, search for those uh, videos, find Russell on uh, LinkedIn, get that full list because there's great work that we can be doing to continue to support our charities um, and make sure that everybody's making informed choices. So um, that all said, I really uh, want to thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation today. Uh, Russell James is a professor at uh, Texas Tech University. Russell, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for the invitation.